You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America, Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, in the house here at CR's Northern Command. Friday, thank God, the end of the week here, November 3rd. Um, it's been nuts. It has been nuts, one thing after another. I know a lot of you guys have been asking me online what I think of this tax plan. Um, I want to address that next week, specifically here, but we will have my big piece out today, 2,000 words. And I, I apologize for the length, but it's so hard to cover this. Short of it is, it's it's too clever by half. It's political malpractice. You, there is no way to do a progressive income tax that's revenue neutral. You're going to have winners and losers among our own conservative middle upper income, middle income. Um, some people are actually going to pay more. I worked out my own taxes and that is a very, very serious problem. Um, but for today, I want to do something different. And I, I referenced this before. I'm going to link to this in show notes, my article on the judicial war on North Carolina and why you guys should care about it. Because this is not just North Carolina. As you well know, the judiciary is sacking our government. Um, the entire conception of the power, what the power the judiciary holds, what it doesn't. Um, where basically in North Carolina, every single thing that Republicans wanted to do that is sane is struck down. So it's not worth winning elections anymore. But now it's a step further. They're making it that Republicans won't even be able to win elections anymore because the courts are now striking down voter integrity laws in every single map. Not just federal, but state maps that federal courts should have no jurisdiction over, should only be in state court. And they're literally, quite literally becoming a super executive and legislature, literally not just striking down, which they have no power in this concept for a number of reasons, but actually drawing new maps um, and codifying Democrat gerrymanders into law. That is something we can't recover from if they codify Democrat gerrymanders into the Constitution because that means that you're taking the Democrat political advantage and saying they have an unalienable right to maximize their advantage, but Republicans can't maximize theirs, and we've got a problem here. So I wanted to bring in an old guest here, haven't had him on for a while, friend of the show, Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina, Dan Forrest. Um, hey, Dan, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm doing great, Daniel. Uh, thanks for having me back on. It's been a while. No, it definitely has. And and look, a lot has happened since um, we we talked last. You know, you, you the last time you had a Republican governor um, and lost that election, and now you got Democrat Governor Roy Cooper. So it's even harder. But you still have super majorities in the legislature. You got the lieutenant governor's seat, which you know in southern states has a lot of influence over the legislature. Could you just give a brief overview of what the courts are doing specifically with your state legislative districts now, um, this whole business of appointing an SAT-style proctor to babysit the legislature, denude them of their powers, Mm -hmm. and why this is really the canary in the coal mine for other states as well? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, we've we've kind of I think been the testing grounds here in North Carolina for how far um, the left is going to be able to push the judiciary to legislate from the bench, and you know what is the pushback going to be from America? I mean, from the states specifically. I mean, uh, we're watching. We've watched it before. We watched it with our marriage amendment, and uh, we had a constitutional amendment on marriage here in North Carolina, as a lot of states did, and we saw the court sweep in and uh, say no. That's that's illegal, but then they obviously, as you remember, I think we talked about it, they came back and uh, said, oh, well, now marriage, gay marriage is legal. So they not only made a decision uh, about uh, our constitutional amendment, they then uh, do their uh, judicial overreach or judicial tyranny, as I like to call it, uh, came in at that point and said, here's, here's the new law. And we've seen this happen across the country, but we've really seen it uh, as of late in North Carolina on a number of fronts, specifically uh, this front related to our uh, drawing of our districts here in our state. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is every time we draw new district lines based on what the court says they want and we follow their rules, they come back from a federal level again and say, no, that's not good enough. And uh, I'll just quickly, Daniel, we can get in conversation, but quickly just give you a little story. I was uh, happened to be in Philadelphia for the opening of the uh, Museum of the American Revolution, and they wanted representatives from 13 colonies. I happened to be the only Republican sitting at this table for dinner with a bunch of governors uh, from around the from those 13 colonies. I was sitting next to Terry McAuliffe for dinner. He didn't know I was a Republican, and he went on about a 15-minute uh, discussion about how he's raising, along with Obama and Holder, $100 million a year to fight redistricting battles in key battleground states. That was their method for winning. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing is they are uh, using the courts uh, for their legislative purposes to try to win back uh, their redistricting battles, and we're seeing that here play out in North Carolina. Wow. So th- th- and, and that's the key point I want people to understand. Um you know, you know, you know. I, I wrote a book um, on judicial tyranny. I've been, I probably write five articles a week about stuff the judiciary does that people don't even pay attention. <laughs> Just to give our um, listeners a sense of North Carolina, you, you're now being denuded of any state power that has states have held since the founding. Basic powers that are yeah. explicitly written in the Constitution, times, methods, and procedures of holding elections, particularly state. Districts, um, you know, even even Wake County school board districts have been struck down by federal courts after being upheld by <laughs> state courts. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of clowns, even on the right, even some of these pseudo conservative bloggers at National Review. I saw them, you know, saying, "Oh, North Carolina, they they really did do egregious gerrymandering." And I think a lot of people don't realize is this isn't this correct that not only were they upheld twice by state courts, but they were pre cleared by Obama's DOJ. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so they they continue to change the rules when they don't get the results they want. And they keep playing in this like, you know, court of emotional opinion out there with the left of, oh, well, you know, the narrative in North Carolina is the Republican legislature is racist uh, <laughs> because they draw these districts that uh, support Republicans. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can't draw a racial based district. So we don't. So we draw them based along party lines. But when the party lines align with uh, racial, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, dictates whether it's black or Hispanic, whatever it happens to be, then all of a sudden you're racist. So you can't win for losing here. 
And uh, that's really what we're up against. But if, you know, if your listeners follow it out to its ultimate conclusion, if the courts can do this with your redistricting maps, what can't they do this with, right? I mean, we, the courts can come in and say, well, we don't like how you spend your money in North Carolina. We, we want to now uh, not just take this independent person in California to draw North Carolina districts, which we're trying to do the Stanford professor as if he's going to be unbiased in some way. <laughs> or we're going to have the Stanford professor in California now do your budget for you tell you how to how to spend your money we're going to tell you how to establish your education system we're going to we're going to have this, this independent council say oh no you can't have school choice anymore we're going to you can just follow the there, there's nowhere this can't go everybody in america should be extremely concerned about what's going on in the courts here in north carolina as well as everywhere else no no exactly and, and that's the point you know we're, we're going to have a midterm election 2018 and it's very much state based there's more governors and state legislatures up, up on the off year presidential than the presidential year. And this is going to determine this is the year that's going to determine redistricting. Um, So it's both state, but it also really is, you know, going to affect obviously the orientation of the House of Representatives. This is a very critical election. This is the redistricting um, reapportionment election. And basically, the courts have completely taken over not just federal districts, but state districts that, I mean, you know, for for years, it's very clear. I mean, we have this in our article. Um, You know, even Congress was only supposed to get involved, in the words of Hamilton, in extraordinary circumstances. But certainly the unelected federal courts have no jurisdiction. Um, But, you know, just a sense of Arizona for many years and it's still this case, they are at the mercy of the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit has denuded them of all their powers. Pick the 10 things you want a Republican legislature for and just know that everything will be struck down. Um, uh, you know, illegal immigrants, yeah. uh, you know, they, you yeah. can't enforce federal law against them, but you could thwart federal law to protect them. I mean, everything is literally yeah. backwards. And so what I see happening to North Carolina is – um. And this is what really concerns me. This is not in a vacuum. One of Obama's big legacies is that he remade the Fourth Circuit. And, you know, there's a lot of commentators on the right, some of these legal conservatives that really don't understand it. They're saying, oh, man, look what a great job Trump's doing appointing good judges. And and look, I mean, he's doing what he can. It's not his fault. Yeah. But the reality yeah. is you got to go circuit by circuit. And we are not swinging back anything Obama did. The Fourth Circuit, Obama appointed five young judges. That is lost for mm-hmm. two generations. So I have a list here. They've mandated transgenderism on North Carolina. The Fourth Circuit has yeah. blocked every voter integrity law. They required specific times and amounts of early voting. They've criminalized voluntary prayer in one of your counties. They've er- erased every district map from federal, state to county maps. Um, and then this is the same circuit. That's so, so. So states have no power to draw maps. They have no power to mm-hmm. set the number of days of early voting. They have no power to have photo ID. But somehow states now have power, according to the Fourth and Ninth Circuits, to to go up against one thing that is manifestly federal, which is immigration, and demand affirmative rights for Somali Muslims to immigrate. <laughs> I mean, it, this is literally – and here's the problem. Here's what scares me. You know, what do we fight about in Congress? Small ball stuff. This amount of spending in the supplemental yeah. bill, this amount of yeah. the S chip they're doing this week. What's happening in the courts is legacy. These are legacy. These are a hundred year political and social battles. They're winning overnight yeah. without firing and, a shot. 
Yeah, and we have the we have the ability to to change that, right? I mean, Congress needs to stand up to the courts. The the state legislatures need to stand up to the courts. The governors need to stand up to the courts. I was on a few months ago. I went. On, I don't even. Know, I haven't been out there in a while. But the Supreme Court's website. And if you went out to the website, the federal federal, federal website for the Supreme Court, it said uh, at, the, at the very top banner across the photo, it said three co-equal branches of government. <laughs> And uh, I sat there and looked at that, and I said, where is that? Where do you find that? that there's three – I mean, our founding fathers did not create three co-equal branches of government. They th- created three branches, but they very much looked at the court system, these appointed judges in the Supreme Court, and, and saw them as a much lesser sure. uh, branch because comparatively they, they were weaker. appointed for life. Yeah, comparative, yeah comparatively weaker. the weakest in the words of Hamilton, the least danger, dangerous in the words of Hamilton, and yeah. that the legislature would necessarily predominate in the words of Madison. Yeah, and Hamilton, uh, Federal 78, he says the legislature not only commands the purse, but uh, prescribes the rules by which the duties and the rights of every citizen are to be regulated. The judiciary, on the contrary, has no influence of over either the sword or the purse. But we sit here and we let uh, the judiciary have all this influence. We give it to them. And what I hear, I hear this daily, Daniel, and I know you do too. Well, let the courts decide. We're going to let the courts decide. Let, uh, the courts are going to ultimately decide this anyway. Just let them decide. And I hear this all over society. And I think, who gave the authority to the courts to be the final arbiter on any of these decisions? And uh, that's why we are where we are, is because the people that are elected by the people uh, – are abdicating the responsibility of the courts. As long as we continue to abdicate our responsibility, we're going to continue to get these results. And then one day we're not going to have uh, this republic uh, that, uh, you know, that we uh, remember we were challenged with whether we were going to be able to keep or not. You know, I wanted to plug in for our listeners, you know, because they're very plugged into judicial tyranny. We talk about it nationally. But how North Carolina exemplifies what we're talking about. Um you know, I, I've given a lot of lectures on the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy or exclusivity. And this is a perfect mm-hmm. case study. It's not just that we disagree with a court decision or we disagree with their bastardization of the Constitution. It's that we have a constitutional crisis now in which they fundamentally do not have this power. I was joking around and I said, let's say Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. and Paul Ryan and, and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell will get together one day and have a legislative army. And, you know, they just create a military and they start directing it and, you know, domestically, internationally. And then we have a debate come up as to who's going to be the chief of staff in that military. And some people are like, well, it's a good guy, it's a bad guy. And we're sitting there, wait a minute, you guys can't do this. I don't care about who you appoint. You don't have this power. And I want to plug it into this case. Course, what what has distinguished a court from a legislature or executive branch is – they adjudicate cases or controversies. So where yeah. they could, they could, um, you know, a lot of people are saying, "Hey, Daniel, are you suggesting we engage in civil disobedience? We don't listen." I said, "No, I am never suggesting that we don't follow the Constitution or the federal or, or statute. It's yeah, the courts are engaging in civil disobedience, and what it means is this." You know, let's say, and I know this has happened in a lot of states, maybe North Carolina as well. Let's say you want to execute um, a murderer. And the federal courts step in and put a stay on that execution, even if it's under BS grounds. And, you know, often they're saying the jury pool is tainted. There's a lot of there's a growing trend of that. Um, But at the end of the day, they're placing a positive, a negative on your positive 
um, you're not going to go ahead and kill the guy. It's an individual case. Yeah, that's that's right. it's, you know, it's look my ultimate life and liberty. Even though we're we might feel we're right, but life and liberty. Yeah. I could petition a court to grant relief to this individual. He got that relief. They exercised the judicial power, although we might disagree with the way they did it. We're not going to go and actively disobey that. But here yeah, isn't in right. fact what's going on is the opposite. That we're, you know, legislature, they're, they're drawing maps. They come in there and they grant standing. Here, here's what I disagree with. The notion that I could get standing, I don't like the map. Well, look, anyone's going to have some sort of grievance while it affects me indirectly. But th- that's BS. That's not, that's not a valid yeah. individualized grievance. You're taking the ultimate political public policy between two parties to court. Yeah. It's not like a civil or criminal litigation under the law. That's not so. Then the courts say, "All right, Dan, you're a lieutenant governor. Um, go and draw the maps. Go and go and, yeah. uh, and we're going to appoint a proctor." Well, it's, even, it's, it's, so, it's so much worse than that, though, Daniel. They're, they're taking a Stanford professor, some some dude in California, uh, to uh, to draw those maps. I mean, they're not even putting it in the hands of somebody in North Carolina or say, you know. But yeah, they have absolutely zero authority to do this whatsoever, and they've come back multiple times. We followed the rules, as you said before. You know, we. We followed the rules, and the Obama administration even said they were okay. The Holder uh, ju- uh, judicial uh, uh, branch said uh, our justice system said that's okay. And so uh, here we are finding ourselves in the same boat again because they don't like the political outcome of what's going on with those maps. They're just going to keep this process going. And so we are doing what the court says to do. We're not. We're not going to say no. We're not. We're just not you know, paying any attention to you. So then they take it to the next step. And the next step for them is, oh, well, since we're not getting the result we want from uh, this legislature, we're going to do it ourselves. Wow. Wow. I mean, and and that's again, this is the point. There's one thing you grant relief. OK, you, John Doe, um, you don't have to pay this extra tax. You don't have to go to jail. You're not going to get executed. But the notion that you're a going to give standing to plaintiffs to say the map is struck down um, again, there's no such power. But this is like you said, it's not just a judicial veto. It's it's now an affirmative judicial legislation that here's the map you have to draw. Here's the guy who's going to help you draw it. And and this is literally I mean, this is not a right or left conservative or liberal issue. This is a question of we never adopted in 1789 um, such a system, especially from the federal courts, certainly do not have um, such power. I want you to go through an example. This happened last year. One of the most egregious things that the courts did, in my mind, is that. Um, they said that you have to have a certain number of Sundays of early voting. And <laughs> and the way yeah. I, I said to myself, man, this is the perfect example to push back against the courts because the, what, the, what the courts are saying is, again, it's not that you can't do this to Sony. It's saying you have to go in and find workers and use your executive power. See, this is now you're getting the executive power to go and hire people clerks to come in on a sunday five weeks or four weeks before an election hey buddies you get your rear ends off the bench you you go man it if you want to do it meaning that's not not listening to a court they are the ones that are demanding kind of like hey trump go and issue visas to chad go in you know and and uh um have people that just cut off their you know what's in the military and somehow logistically integrate that uh no, you go and do that. You know, isn't is there any effort in the state to say we've had enough? 
Um, I, I certainly feel that way. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how many other people do. I end up, again, like I said, I hear, I hear it on a daily basis. Well, the courts are going to decide. The courts are going to decide. And, and I say this till I am blue in the face. You know, it, it drives me crazy to keep saying the courts have no authority to decide this. This is why this is why you got elected or this is why we have a legislature. This is why you vote for these people so they can go and do their job rather than abdicating the responsibility to, to some unelected uh, uh, attorney wearing a black robe. So um, I'm doing it on blue in the face. And I'm hoping that, you know, maybe we even start to get some relief, if you will, from uh, Jeff Sessions and and his new team up there as he creates his new team. And we can start to, you know, um, maybe at a national level, start to redefine the narrative here, the way that the Constitution lays it out. So I think there's just this kind of blatant, and I'll use it, I want to use it in the right term, blatant ignorance about the Constitution and um, you know what people understand about um, the way that the system's supposed to work, and if uh, the media is constantly working against you, and the less constantly working against you, and they have this consistent drumbeat that this is the way it's supposed to be, then I think people are generally going to believe it. No, no, exactly, exactly. I mean, n- nobody's pushing back. Um, what I always was wondering, and I know this might be a little uncomfortable from where you sit, but you know, th- there's some good elected federal representatives from from the state of north carolina um oh yeah certainly oh, yeah. You know, we, have, we have great good yeah. folks yeah yeah i mean certainly let's just say certainly in the house um at least in the house mm-hmm. and you know lots of republicans a couple of them are actually you know conservative and what strikes me and i understand they're very busy i mean now you have the whole tax issue you got health care they're busy on federal issues but i think it's so eerie and i wrote wrote about this and just to kind of kind of a summary North Carolina, as you well know, was very reluctant to join the federal union, and they, they thought that yeah. Congress and the federal government would swallow up the state. and And Hillsborough in seventeen eighty eight, they is it was inconclusive. They they did not agree to ratify the Constitution, and it wasn't until after George Washington was in in power and they already functioned as a government. Finally, in seventeen eighty nine, they met in Fayetteville, and they 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 agreed to approve it. and And I, I was reading some of the debates. And what what was amazing and eerie, what struck me is that <laughs> they were so concerned that the federal government would would swallow up the state, and yeah. it was the elected branch that no one's brains could have ever fathomed the unelected branch that had neither you know force you know force nor will would be able to do that. And I saw amazingly James Erdell, who is one you know the, probably the most prominent delegate from. Uh, North Carolina, one of the fathers of Article Three, one of the famous lawyers of the founding, uh, first uh, generation of Supreme Court justices, and he was a big Federalist. And he said he actually proposed an amendment to tighten up the language to ensure that the federal government couldn't get involved in times, methods, and procedures of elections. Um, you know, aside for just abolishing, you know, federal yeah. elections, you know, that's <laughs> just one thing they didn't want. But aside from that, and it amazed me that they were talking about Congress. They weren't talking about yeah. the, the the unelected branch. But then what happened was Erdell promised them at the convention in Fayetteville, he said, in Hillsborough, he said, look, what is the federal government if not a composition of North Carolinians? Who do you think is going to Washington? They're going to stand up for us. And that's my question. We're not talking about cute little annoying issues. We're talking about public prayer. We're talking about transgenderism. Yeah. We're talking about voter ID. Um, you know, I, I believe some have a theory that 
the votes that pursuant to statute ballot harvesting that are is prohibited by North Carolina law, but were mandated by the courts was the margin that was enough that single handedly elected Roy Cooper over the Republican McCrory um, or, or at least very close to it. I mean, sure. they're playing sure. for keeps. This is um, oh, yeah. what do you what I was telling some of my my friends is that, look, we know the Republican establishment doesn't give a damn about immigration. We get that. We get that loud and clear. We know they don't care about upholding uh, basic civilization and, you know, just the natural law of a man's a man, a woman's a woman, a marriage is a marriage, uh, pro-life legislation. We get that. They don't really care about it. It's just a talking point. I get it. But if you're a Republican of any sort, they're now at the point that because of the kind of election integrity stuff and the map stuff, they are making it that Republicans cannot win elections. Do you see a sense from the Republican establishment that they get this play down the field that Holder and, and the left are making? I don't. I haven't I haven't gotten that sense yet. I think you're right from uh, you know, our friends in D.C. who we have some good representatives up there. Um, I think they're busy doing the things that they are doing there on a daily basis. I don't think they necessarily always have their eye on the ball with what's going on here at, at the state level that does impact them, too. You know, obviously, we could go back and, and talk about, uh, you know, the constitutional amendment that uh, took the Senate elections out of the hands of the legislatures within really really separated uh, the federal from the state government and separated the authority and the power that the states had. And um, and so from that point forward, obviously, there's been this much more grand separation there. And so folks go to D.C. and they deal with things that are considered to be national uh, interest issues. And then folks at the state deal with these. But this this one is a national interest issue. This You're right. I think you started off your segment here right. Everybody in America should pay attention to what's been going on systematically in North Carolina, um, especially related to voter ID and especially related to election law and redistricting. Because as I tell my friends around the country, this may be happening in North Carolina right now, but this is coming to a state near you real soon. Because if they can figure out how to make it work here, um, they can figure out how to make it work everywhere else. Sure, and they've already done it to Wisconsin, several other states. And I think just to, yeah. it, it's kind of hard to talk about maps when you're not looking at them. But, um, you know, mm -hmm. I, uh, a lot of people, you know, gerrymandering gets a bad name. Obviously, both parties are going to try to maximize their advantage. But yeah. I, I think just to put a general sense of what is so d dangerous here is that just to call a spade a spade, in most states, the dynamic is as such that we've reached a point in American politics where, um, 90% of blacks in most states vote Democrat, but the majority of whites, not as much, but the majority vote Republican, right? That's, that is just a political reality. Um, mm -hmm. And that's fine. I mean, that is what it is. And, you, you know, that's a political, political science yeah. thing. What, they, what is dangerous now is that they, the courts are creating, they're enshrining into the VRA, Voting Rights Act, and the 14th, 5th, and 1st Amendments, um, the fact that, not that blacks have the right to have an equal say and not have their districts obliterated, which is what, you know, they mm -hmm. did in the old days. It's that yeah, but the, Democrats, but the yeah, Democrat, uh, yeah, and mm -hmm. I wanted to get that. Democrats have the right to use, you utilize the black vote, and the fact that they vote Democrat gives them that power to maximize their advantage, whereas Republicans don't have the right to maximize the white vote. And while mm -hmm. Republicans do engage in gerrymandering, the truth be told— and I'd like you to share your North Carolina experience. What I've noticed is the Democrats actually, in order to do what they want to do, are have to engage in more egregious 
um, violation of district integrity, uh, natural boundaries, because you're talking to a man. I live in Maryland's third district. Google it. Maryland's mm-hmm. third district, mm-hmm. most gerrymandered district in the country. Um, mm-hmm. So Baltimore City, as you know, it's mainly black. It's mainly Democrat. But because it's been run into the ground, even though it's in a major famous city, it actually in the actual city, not the metro area, the city is just 600,000 people. So any yeah. sane person, whether you're left or right, just objectively speaking, you'd say it has to be one district. And then the question is, where do you get the extra 120, 130,000 to you know, have a full district? But certainly, certainly, certainly Baltimore City would be one district. Guess what? They spliced it into four because why do you need to win 90-10 when you could win four 60-40? So they, yeah. they, they demolished the black vote in order to maximize their political advantage. And guess what? That's still standing. Somehow – that yeah. is still standing, but yeah, we had we used to have the twelfth uh, uh, district here in North Carolina, which was Mel Watts district uh, house district that went from uh, Charlotte, uh, just straight up the I eighty five corridor in through Greensboro, one hundred and fifty miles away. This district's probably like maybe twenty miles wide, all the way up to Greensboro along the corridor. Um, because that's where they picked up the minority vote for that district. So that one was upheld for a long time. And the courts upheld that district. That was fine for for years. And that was the most gerrymandered district maybe in the country at the time. Uh, And um, that's gone away. And if you look at our maps today, comparatively to when the Democrats were drawing the maps here in North Carolina, it's not even close. I mean, it's it's nothing nothing similar. They don't look gerrymandered at all compared to that. So, um, yeah, it's all comparative. And, you know, again, we are dictated by the courts. You can't use race, um, but you have to, you know, have this equal representation thing going on. And uh, it becomes very difficult to figure out what those lines are, exactly what you're getting at. How do you do this? How do you effectively make this happen? Uh, and, you know, the people need to realize, too, that, that this whole process was set up for the, the prevailing party on that uh, 10, you know, every 10 year election to be able to draw these lines. Of course, they're going to be partisan. <laughs> that was the way the exactly. system was, was established, uh, that it would be that way. And now we act like somehow, you know, in North Carolina, Democrats were in charge for 140 years and there was never any media outcry. <laughs> uh, there was never any Democrat or left outcry about uh uh, you know, nonpartisan district drawing that never happened. But now that Republicans have been in charge for a handful of years, this is a common drumbeat, a steady drumbeat from the left in the media every single day about how uh, racist and partisan the districts are in North Carolina. No, exactly. And, and, and that's the thing. Everything has a racial or identity angle. Everything is racist. Photo yeah. ID is racist. Not ballot harvesting is racist. Not having 25 days of early voting is racist. And any map you want to draw, if it doesn't net the requisite Democrat districts that the liberal Obama appointed judges on the courts want, um, yeah. you know, that's racist, too. And, you know, I, I think a lot of our side, they run for the hills when when, you know, the race call comes. But, yeah. you know, this is something you can't lose. There's nothing left then. I mean, and that's y- – you can't run from it. I, the You know, in our remaining two minutes here, I just want to – what do you think in terms of remedies? One idea I was thinking, and I was wondering if you're interested in pushing this with some of the federal representatives is, you know – at least putting federal districts on a, on a shelf, and that's a problem what the courts are doing, but at the very least, state legislative maps to reform either the VRA and write a statute, you know, which Congress has full control over the lower courts, to at least yeah. just kick the Fourth Circuit or maybe apply nationally the lower federal courts out of redistricting of lower courts. And what that would mean is 
you still have oversight of the legislature. The state courts, which are elected, they could ha- they could weigh in. And and if you don't like that, you could have at least one avenue to to um appeal to the Supreme Court. But you know they're limited in yeah. their caseload, and they they're more reluctant to get involved. But right now, the lower court federal courts are nuts. They'll get involved in three yeah. seconds, and then the Supreme yeah. Court. And you've seen this in North Carolina; they play this well. You know they don't really overturn them. And I yeah. think if we just pull the rug out from under the game, I think this is very sensible. State courts could have review. Yeah. Supreme Court could have it. But the lower federal courts should have no jurisdiction. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, the way it's, play, it's supposed to play out now, and a lot of people don't realize this, is the Supreme Court is supposed to be this equal balance out to the, the federal uh, district court. So the Fourth Circuit and the North Carolina Supreme Court should be an equal balance and, and to get to the Supreme Court. They should be able to weigh each other out, and they don't do that now. So you're, you're exactly right. I'm, I'm all in, Daniel, to any solution that uh, you think we uh, uh, might be able to uh, play out our members of Congress. I think you and I should get together offline and, and start talking about some of this. I, I, I can't wait. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people are clamoring for this. Um, I, I, I think it's like you said, it's, it's certainly the redistricting is a big deal because basically it will render net next election moot. Democrats might even get a permanent majority in so many of the state legislatures and even in the House of Representatives. But also it's just the notion that there, we've reached a point where courts could now talk about the Fourth Circuit. They ripped down. They're saying you have to rip down a 92-year-old World War One memorial in Prince George's County, Maryland, because it has a cross on it. Yet there's somehow a religious liberty right for any Muslim from Somalia and Yemen to go and immigrate here. This is not mm-hmm. funny anymore. It's not cute anymore. No. It's got to stop. No. And um, yeah. people are desperately asking me, Daniel, what are people doing? What are people doing? And you know, I'd love to get you on board with trying to form a task force. Um, of states pushing back in the appropriate issues in the right way using their powers because I, I, I can't find anyone who's um who's willing to do this. Yeah, I haven't seen anybody yet either. So, uh, you know, I'm on board and I'd uh, be more than happy to, you know, uh, put the call out to my friends that are lieutenant governors around the country. We have uh, right now we have 30 Republican lieutenant governors who I think would be on board as well to to take this issue on and, and work with Congress to get something done. Ultimately, it's going to be Congress's authority to do this. So uh, happy to um, uh, start the process and and start those discussions. Well, anyway, thanks so much for your time. Really insightful as always. Can't wait to have you back yeah. on. Look for my call. Thank you, Daniel. I'm going to be barking down yeah. your door because I, I need anywhere I can get an audience on this. Um, it's yeah. everything. It's Any- just Anytime, anytime. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me on, and we'll look forward to the next time. Take care. Anyway, folks, there you have it. That was Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, terrific conservative from North Carolina, um, one of the few brave souls out there willing to, you know, speak beyond the typical Republican PC and, you know, actually, you know, admit that there's no such thing as judicial tyranny. Um, this is not North about North Carolina. This is about the entire country. This is about everything we're seeing on immigration, on transgenderism, on you know any any modicum of of restrictions on on abortion. The courts are out of control. Um, anyway, we're going to get back to taxes next week, taxes, healthcare, and everything. Like I said, the GOP plan is horrible. We're about out of time here. Have a great weekend. Thank you all for listening. God bless. This has been another episode of the Conservative Conscience. 